Hello and welcome to the Pastcast. I'm Sarah Griffiths and on this week's episode we're looking into the cult of divine kingship in the early 19th dynasty of ancient Egypt. Divine kingship was as old as Egyptian civilization itself with kings ruling as avatars on earth for gods and goddesses. The concept reached its peak during the 18th and 19th dynasties during which temples were built throughout Egypt and Nubia by the pharaohs such as Ramses II, who reigned from about 1279 to 1213 BC. Peter J. Brand will be exploring the life and legacy of Ramses II and reassessing the 19th dynasty in a series of articles in Ancient Egypt magazine, You can read the first of these articles in issue 136 and also in full on the past website via the link in this episode's description. Peter J. Brand is professor in the Department of History at the University of Memphis and he's director of the Karnak Great Hyperstyle Hall Project. And he's also the author of The Monuments of Seti and Their Historical Significance that was published by Brill. And his latest book is Ramses II, Egypt's Ultimate Pharaoh, published by Lockwood Press. So welcome to the past cast, Peter. It's good to be here. You specialise particularly in the 19th dynasty around 1295 to 1186 BC. What attracts you to this particular part of Egyptian history? Well, it's funny. I was just watching this show the other day with a family member. I, I was fascinated by the monuments like uh, Abu Simbel Temple. Uh, and I remember seeing an old National Geographic documentary about Egypt, Quest for Eternity. And they showed the Seti Temple at Abydos. They showed the Abu Simbel Temple and how they rescued it in the 1960s. The Great Hypostyle Hall with this forest of columns the giant statues of Ramses II at Luxor Temple. And I I was just sort of captivated by these glorious monuments, uh, the beautiful reliefs at the Seti Temple, and and it just really captivated me. Uh, The grandeur of the monuments, the exquisite art, and I guess I never looked back. I love all periods of Egyptian history, uh, um, but I I do, like I say, uh, keep coming back to the Ramesside period. I was also heavily influenced growing up in the 1970s by Tutankhamun mania. Um, and so I've also, uh, some of my work has been on the end of the 18th dynasty, the post-Amarna period. And of course, that also segues very nicely into the early Ramazide period. So for instance, when I did my doctoral dissertation on Sadi I and his monuments, and uh, a part of that was on his restoration of monuments defaced by Akhenaten, I found that many of these uh, restored images of the gods that had been defaced on the temples, especially in Thebes, like at Karnak and Luxor, had actually previously been restored by the pharaoh Tutankhamun, and then uh, Seti I had come back and re-restored them. And so that was also, you know, showing the connections between the end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th dynasty. Which is presumably why you have a particular interest in the Great Hyperstyle Hall at Karnak. It's probably one of the most awe-inspiring monuments with these giant forest of trees surrounding you. Could you tell us a bit about the, the history of this particular structure and what the aims of the project are? 
Yes, uh, the the Great Hypostyle Hall, I mean, it's often called the Forest of Columns. I guess it's the petrified forest of gigantic uh, sandstone columns. The central ones reach heights of 70 feet, uh, 20 meters, and it's very majestic. Every square inch of this building is covered with uh, literally hundreds of hieroglyphic inscriptions, maybe thousands, and hundreds of uh, elaborately carved uh, scenes of the king worshiping the gods. The exterior walls have panoramic battle scenes of Seti I and Ramses II. Uh, It's really an encyclopedia of Egyptian history, culture, political uh, ideology, and military and foreign relations, history and and culture. And I was just fascinated by it, just the grandeur again. The kind of work that I do is actually recording inscriptions and interpreting Egyptian history from the monumental uh, inscriptions that that cover these monuments. And so it's it's like I like to say it's my office when I go to the Hypostyle Hall. It's it's a great office to have. So when you're at Karnak in your office, being pestered by all the tourists, what is it that you're trying to achieve? So our, our project's aim is to record the inscriptions on the walls of the Hypostyle Hall and on the columns, and also to interpret them to understand uh, what they mean from a cultural historical point of view. And also to try to conserve them. So we have been working lately since 2011 to record the scenes on the columns and the inscriptions. We developed a method to uh, even to create 3D models of the inscriptions on the columns and even uh, through some uh, technical magic to flatten what we call unroll them. Uh, Lately, we have also been working on recording some of the battle scenes on the south wall of the Hypostal Hall of Ramses II, and on an adjoining wall, some of the battle scenes of the Pharaoh Merneptah. And most recently, and I'm very excited about this, we've started to make a new edition of the uh, Hittite Peace Treaty. And I'm hoping that when we go back to Karnak this December, we can also make a new facsimile copy of the text of the poem of the Battle of Kadesh, which is the larger of the textual compositions of the Battle of Kadesh. Also, the kind of work we do, it's its kind of like detective work. Uh, I, I like to compare it to almost forensics. Uh, the Ramazide kings, although they weren't the only ones that did this, uh, and Ramses II especially, is rather infamous for the practice of uh, erasing earlier inscriptions and recarving his own inscriptions over top of earlier ones. And he even did this uh, to inscriptions of his own father and grandfather, which uh, seems rather tacky, I suppose. And it's often assumed he did this with nefarious motives, you know, trying to steal credit for the works of his predecessors or that he had something against them. And there are clearly cases where pharaohs would do this, uh, you know, out of animosity, whether it was personal or just sort of political. Uh, You know, you think about the erasure of Hatshepsut's uh, inscriptions or the Akhenaten's defacement of the the traditional gods or uh, the removal of Akhenaten's name and image or Tutankhamun's name or image from the monuments after their deaths. But it could also be done not so much to diss an earlier pharaoh, but actually to promote the the reigning pharaoh. And Ramses II in particular did this in the later years of his reign after he had ruled so long. And when he was celebrating his jubilee festivals, 
when literally few people in Egypt could still remember the, the reign of his predecessor, Sadiq I. And, and it's a very different view of history and, and culture, the, 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 a different kind of mindset. But it was actually perfectly legitimate for Ramses to do this. And in this strange way, he was trying to associate himself with glorious kings of the past. It was a strange form of admiration. And of course, later pharaohs did the same thing to him mm. as a way of trying to admire him in a strange kind of way. I've always felt that in a way it was very unfair because Ramses II inherited quite a lot of wealth and a, and a relatively stable country. And he's seen as far superior to pharaohs that perhaps we know less about. I'm thinking about Amos, who is the founder of the New Kingdom, or Mentehotep II, the founder of the Middle Kingdom, because they would have spent a great deal of their reigns trying to consolidate their power on Egypt, whereas Ramses has just got it on a plate. So in your new book, you call him Egypt's ultimate pharaoh, but I have to ask you to back that up with some hard evidence or is he really the ultimate pharaoh, or, or do you think there's just an awful lot of propaganda? Well, it's a bit of both. I mean, the reason I the book's not called Egypt's Greatest Pharaoh is because that title was already taken. Um, <laughs> the reason I call him the, the ultimate pharaoh is in the sense that he is everything that is a pharaoh is supposed to be. He is the ultimate paragon of pharaonic kingship. He checks all the boxes and his the biggest check marks. Uh, long reign check. There may you know Pepe the the second may have ruled longer. There may be a few other pharaohs that ruled for about you know the same ballpark in terms of the, the overall the length of their reign, but very few. Uh, number of monuments, hundreds of statues. Uh, I suppose Amenhotep III comes close in terms of giant monuments, Khufu and Khafre with the Great Pyramids come kind of close, or maybe their individual monuments were bigger than you know any one of Ramses II's monuments. But in terms of sheer numbers, again, few people can compete with Ramses II. Check in terms of being a great warrior king. Uh, again, you might say that uh, uh, Tutmosis III would edge him out, perhaps. But Ramses is right up there. Check in terms of a great statesman uh, with the Hittite peace treaty, his uh, Hittite marriages, uh, etc. Check. So uh, God King again, Amenhotep the Third certainly is is rather much of a God King. Some of the uh, the the old kingdom pharaohs, but Ramses check. So again, if you look at all the ways that what a pharaoh is supposed to be, Ramses is that and then some. And if you look at the way he was remembered afterwards, um, we call him Ramses the Great, but uh, the Egyptians remembered him as Ramses the Great God. Usamat Ray said to Penre the Great God, or uh, Usamat Ray said to Penre the Great Ancestor. And again, although there were four Amenhoteps, there were uh, four uh, Tutmoses, uh, there were 11 Ramses. And if it wasn't for Ramses II, there wouldn't have been nine more Ramses afterwards. For all these reasons, I think this is why uh, he he can fairly lay claim to the title of Ramses, the ultimate pharaoh. I'm sure when we read your book, we can uh, decide for ourselves according to the evidence that you put forward. And we're hoping to review the book 
in um, a future edition of the magazine. But I'm pleased to say that you've agreed to write a series of articles for us. And the first one to appear in Ancient Egypt magazine is out in AE136. And you focused on divine kingship, which I, I believe began really with Amenhotep III in the 18th dynasty. Yes. So, uh, of course, the the concept of the king's divinity really goes back to the beginning of Egyptian civilization. And uh, the question of how divine uh, Egyptian kings were during their lifetimes, because once they died, there's no question that they were considered gods. And there was always a kind of tension because on the one hand, the king had some degree of divinity even during his lifetime. But the Egyptians were all too aware that their god king would grow old, that he could get sick, that he could be weak in mind or body, uh, and that he would eventually die. But of course, even the gods could die. I mean, Ray himself in mythology was said to grow old, become feeble, to drool. And uh, and of course, the sun god himself at night, when he set and went into the underworld, he died. Osiris was murdered, and he reigns in the underworld as a deceased deity. But um, there's always this tension here about how you reconcile the king's theoretical divinity with his human frailties. And the Egyptians came up with a sophisticated theology of the king's divinity. Um, certain kings, and in the New Kingdom, Amenhut III, before Ramses, is the one that pushes it to the greatest extreme. Uh, push forward this notion of the king's divinity. Now, one way that you can actually proclaim that the the king can be divine is to separate the king's human side from his divine persona and to show that they're related to one another, but not quite conjoined. And so there's the cult of kingship through the medium of these giant colossal statues. And the, the, the spirit of kingship sometimes referred to as the royal call, uh, can settle on the king as an individual, maybe temporarily, or that theoretically through his office, he can be divine. And even the human king as a man can worship his own divine alter ego. Uh, But Amenhotep III in the last decade of his reign seems to push the idea that he has actually become the living embodiment of his own godhood. I wonder how many tourists wandering through Karnak and looking at all these colossal statues realize exactly what they're looking at. Yeah, I I don't think we fully appreciate that. A lot of people have this idea that they don't understand exactly what the purpose of Egyptian statuary is. Because, of course, we think of statues as something that, especially public statues, as something for birds to sit on and, you know, go to the bathroom on or that they're commemorative or, the, you know, like, you know, it's to celebrate, you know, a historical figure or or there's this whole idea that statues are somehow guardians, you know, like they're guarding something. And especially if they're sitting next to a gateway, that they're guardian statues. And that's just not they're actually cult statues. They represent the object of worship, they are bodies for a divine being, including whether it's a deceased person for his spirit to inhabit, to receive offerings in his tomb chapel, or for a, a, a god in his temple, or for the divine king to receive offerings in the cult of divine kingship. So some of those colossal statues were actually worshipped in their own right, and 
presumably because they were in the outer parts of the temples, they that meant ordinary people had access to them. Yes, and in fact, we possess a lot of stele that shows various levels of Egyptian society paying uh, worship to colossal statues of the king, from the vizier and even royal princes down to average people who worship the king's divine statues uh, and prayed to them. And so, yes, that's the purpose of these things. It's a kind of political cult of personality, but also that it was a spiritual medium. And they prayed to the king, his divine persona, through these giant statues. Do you think that the number of statues that Ramses in particular put up reflects the fact that he and his family were commoners? They weren't really from royal blood. Ramses was born before his grandfather, Ramses I, became king. So do you feel that perhaps this quest to really show divinity, it stemmed from the need to justify their rule and to reassert the cult of kingship? Um, and that could be one consideration. Um, it could also be related to, in terms of a kind of personal factor, it could, it could, it could do with a kind of personal ambition. Ego, um, you mean? Yes. I mean, these are kind of things that are hard to put your finger on because trying to read the personality of these ancient figures is rather difficult. I have no doubt that Ramses was a rather ambitious and strong-willed individual, um, but it's rather hard to psychoanalyze the pharaohs. On the other hand, however, the ideology of kingship, the practice of building large monuments, this was something that was baked in to uh, Egyptian kingship. And so expressing themselves through monumental construction, etc., is just something that a king would want to do. On the other hand, regardless of exactly why, and I think it's a combination of factors, there's no question that Ramses is exceptional. And even considering the fact that he reigned for a very long time, everything he did was to uh, an extreme degree. So he was highly ambitious, highly motivated, uh, highly active. Again, this goes back to this idea of being the ultimate pharaoh because he built so much. He he created so many statues. And although, of course, there were dozens and dozens of statues of earlier kings that are reinscribed, we shouldn't think that he didn't actually create any statues of his own because there were dozens, if not hundreds of statues that were created new, both colossal statues as well as life-size and over-life-size statues that were not actually giant, uh, just numerous statues that were created over the course of his reign. And again, dozens of temples and other types of monuments, dozens of obelisks. Just There were at least two dozen pairs of obelisks only at the capital of Pyramuses. So yeah, everything that he did was uh, superlative. And so what would you say is his legacy to the following dynasties? Well, I, I think that he transformed uh, the expectations of, or the style, if you will, of what a king was supposed to be. Ramses, on the one hand, and the Ramesides did follow Egyptian traditions. Sometimes the Ramesside kings are seen as somehow kind of reactionary or overly traditionalist in the in the wake of the Amarna period, but they actually were quite innovative. They took traditional Egyptian forms, but they also introduced innovative patterns. 
the way Ramses told the Battle of Kadesh, some of the literary forms that he introduced, uh, the way that the Battle of Kadesh was pre uh, presented both artistically and in terms of the literary portrayal of that. Other examples you could come up with in the monumental art, in the texts and images, etc. Uh, there was a lot of innovation here. He he sort of set a new standard for Egyptian kingship and uh, monumental art and uh, textual compositions, etc. And this style of kingship then was imitated by Egyptian pharaohs, not just of the succeeding Ramesside dynasties, the 19th dynasty and the 20th dynasty, but even by successive generations of uh, following dynasties uh, that echoed through the centuries, the the Libyan dynasties, the 22nd and 23rd dynasties, and even as late as the Ptolemaic and Roman dynasties, there are echoes of Ramses II that crop up, for instance, in the styles of the royal names that are echoes of the way that Ramses II composed his name. So, for instance, one of the things you see is that a number of pharaohs will arrange their cartouche names to echo Ramses' uh, coronation name, Usermatre. Uh, or even when they don't exactly write their name, Usermatre, they'll even arrange their own names that, that kind of mimic the appearance of this. And, of course, in Egyptian folklore, this comes down to us so that in the Ptolemaic period, we have the famous uh, uh, folk tales of Setna Kamwas, uh, which are said in the time of Ramses II and his famous son Kamwasta. It even comes down into Greco-Roman times uh, with some of the tales that Herodotus tells and the epic records of Sesostris, which is actually a combination of various ancient Egyptian pharaohs sort of rolled into one. But one of the key elements of that legend are memories of Ramses II. So uh, he, he is remembered, even if it becomes sort of more dimly remembered, in the cultural memory of Egypt for another thousand years, really down to the end of paganism. So we've only really been able to touch briefly on the important reign of Ramses and, in fact, this important era. But I'm really looking forward to reading your new book, Ramses II, Egypt's Ultimate Pharaoh, published by Lockwood and is available. I think it's coming out very shortly. Um, where can we find out more about the project? So we have a website um, that's attached to the University of Memphis www.memphis.edu slash hypostyle. You can also just Google uh, Hypostyle Hall Project. And soon, uh, my colleague from the University of Quebec in Montreal will be going live with a new website that will actually present the imagery of the flattened images of the uh, the column scenes. I believe it will be in French. I'm not sure if there's going to be in English version, but it will have all the images of the column scenes, but we're waiting for him to finish uh, with that website as well. And presumably that means we'll be able to see all the images that are too high to actually be able to study in any depth when you're stood there staring up at the ceiling. Yes. The other, the other thing is we do have a book that is a publication of translations and analysis and also photographs of all the wall scenes inside the Hypostyle Hall 
that is available, uh, of course, there's a book to buy, but there's a free PDF of it that's available through the University of Chicago's Oriental Institute. And you can download both volumes for free from the Oriental Institute uh, publications. Uh, and then, you know, if you just want that, you can keep it for free. And then if you like it enough, you can buy it. Uh, and it's quite reasonable considering you get these huge two volumes with hundreds of photographs for a very reasonable price. You can read Peter's article on divine kingship in the upcoming issue A136. And we're looking forward to future articles from you as well. So, Peter, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Thank you. That was Peter J. Brand talking to me. And you can read the first of his articles in the latest issue of Ancient Egypt magazine, which is out now. And it's also available to read in full on the past website via the link below. In the upcoming issue of the magazine, which is out on the 8th of June in the UK, we have the first of another series of articles, this time examining the reigns of the Cleopatras who ruled during the Ptolemaic period. We also visit Tel El Farca, an important pre-dynastic site in the Delta, where some intriguing gold sheet figures have been unearthed. We hear about the myth of the heavenly cow and how the destruction of mankind was prevented by red-coloured beer. And there are priests behaving badly as we explore the scandals among the servants of the gods. That's all for this week. Thanks very much for listening.